kick it? Salem's Lot. Can I kick it? Salem's Lot. I didn't put a lot of effort into the yeah, song this one, time. I, that's you know what? I'm they all can't be winners, dude. Well, I I did it as an act of protest because frankly, I thought this mini series <gasps> sucked, dude. Oh, no. <laughs> you're on. Uh, you're putting it. Uh, you're putting it on. Ah, uh, fuck. Can I say Sam's Sam's you already you gave no. away the end. Everyone's waiting to hear what Swaim thinks. No, you can't. Um, yeah, usually if you're familiar with how Kings of Kings go, Kings of King goes and has always gone, like the main thing about it is mm-hmm. that I bring amazing parody songs to the table <laughs> when we open the door. And I'm sorry that I had nothing this time because I was frankly uninspired. Uh, and we'll be talking about why. As we cover 1979's Salem's Lot, uh, mm-hmm. adapted from the works of Stephen King, because indeed this is, get it right this time, the Kings of King, plural hey. then singular. And nice. I'm one of your kings, Michael Swaim. I'm the other guy, Abe Epperson. Yeah, and we cover all of the film adaptations and, in this case, TV miniseries adaptations of the works of Stephen King. You may also Mm. know us as the Coen Brothers Brothers, a previous show where we only covered things of a certain quality level. And I think you'll find that this show (laughs) is a little bit different. You're just going for the digs on Salem's Lot. What did Salem's Lot ever do to deserve this? It wasted three full hours of my life with a bunch of boring vampire I, bullshit. Yeah, well, there's there's not a lot. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll wait till the end. I'll wait till the end. How about that? Give them something to Hated wait. it. Yeah, um, that's, that's fine. So that's my deal with Salem's Lot. And mm-hmm. uh, we will dig in. It is 1979, I think I mentioned, directed by Toe. Toby Hooper? Toby Hooper? Tobe Hooper? I'm not Tobe really Hooper. sure. Tobe uh, Hooper. He, he did a... We'll, we'll talk about it. Oh, incredibly has done movies I really love. Uh, a legendary horror director. Um, it's just always unclear whether it's Tobe or Toby. And I'm sure there's an answer and people are screaming oh, it an right now. We just didn't research it. So, hey. I, yes. Can we... <laughs> I disliked the thing so much. I thought of a game. Can we do a game instead of talking about the movie? You know how I love games, man. I try Uh, to put in the amount of effort that I think the thing deserves. So in this case, (laughs) I am going to name a title of a movie that is an anagram for Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. And as fast as you can, I want to hear a log line. All right, uh, like a it premise. Has to be Whoa, fast. That movie would God, be about. that's not going to be funny. You, you no. get fu- all right. <laughs> well, take your time in a hurry, like a Goldeneye okay. multiplayer. I level. understand <laughs> performance. Okay. I mean, I you want it. it to be somewhat fast. Should we break down why improv works and doesn't work? And why <laughs> <Yes>. works? <laughs> it's on Salem's lot. Um, we have our man improv manifesto. So, all right, uh, Salem's lot. So what okay. would a movie called Male Slots be about? And and it's a pun. It's yeah, not, I know. Okay, M-A-L-E, because that's the number of letters. Let, male yeah, Slots. Yeah, male Slot. Uh, so I think it's a rom-com between two dudes uh, who are assigned the same uh, male slot in their apartment building and it, uh, it creates, you know, hijinks at first and then love later. 
Oh, yeah. It's got that classic scene where their dicks both end up in the same mail slot and (laughs) touch at the middle. It's like, truly, truly, it was in my mail slot all along. (laughs) All right. Next one. Next one. Salem slot. What would a movie be about if it was called Lost Meals? And it's a clumsy play on Last Meals. Lost Meals. Lost Meals with a hint of Last Meals is a heist film that is one last hurrah for a group of people who would steal uh, meals from Meals on Wheels. Uh, and, and they get they steal from the poor and they give to the poor. Uh, it's just other poor. Oh, they give the meals to other poor people who also yeah. need meals? So okay. it's, lost, it's Lost Meals. And they're like a suicide squad, I assume. They were all on death row. That's yeah. why it's Last Meals. Ooh, I like that addition a lot. And they're, yes. this is to get their freedom. It makes okay. them... Can I money, please? Um, what about smell oats? <laughs> smell oats is a children's animated film. Sure. Uh, between a donkey. Uh, it's about the unlikely friendship between a donkey and a horse and the donkey cannot smell oats. Uh, <laughs> but the, the farmer who loves them both yeah. is trying to get them home by uh, throwing oats on the ground. And Great. so the horse has to bring them both homeward bound. Huh? You're on a huh? roll, dude. Lasso Money, melt. Please. Lasso melt. Lasso melt? Lasso melt. That's, That's an right. Anagram? Of Salem's Lot. Yes, it is. Wow. Lasso Melt. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, Lasso Melt is a uh, Italian neorealism film uh, that deals uh, much akin to City Slickers with a uh, uh, out-of-work chef who was at the, t- the, the, the tippy top of his uh, trade, mm-hmm. uh, he got right. fired and now he has to go into the American West and uh, figure out how to cook the old time cuisine. Oh, of- like over a campfire. Mm-hmm. 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 While roping mm-hmm. some steers. <laughs> hey. And learning about history of I'm just America? warning you now there's going to be more than you think there will be. Oh God, why are we doing this? So, so I should uh, be more bullet point. Okay, Next up, now, I think this is going great. Okay. Smallest O. Smallest O. <laughs> Salem's Wait, Lot. <laughs> Smallest O. Uh, Smallest O. Smallest O is a uh, another animated children's film. Uh, that, that yeah, well, a lot of them could be. That's just... Yes, it's very helpful. It's a helpful trope slash genre. Smallest O is uh, is the. It's actually I scratch that. It's a adult uh, animation because mm. the smallest O it stands for orgasm. Like right. People. Uh, okay. All right. So smallest O is about like a Pixar esque. Uh, like what if orgasms had feelings and, and they keep picking on the tiny, the, the smallest of the orgasms. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Salem's lot. Same stole. Now for spelling reasons, this is a vehicle for our friend Katie stole S T O L L same stole. Same stole is a art house film. Um, probably directed by Alex Garland. Or myself. <laughs> or both I'm, of you together. I'm going away. I'm, not, I'm no longer talking about plot. I'm just thinking about movies now. You're just packaging uh, it. Yeah, yeah. It's going to run uh, in Budapest. Stoll and- is, uh, uh, Katie Stoll uh, is, has, finds that uh, online that her, her nemesis, 
uh, and longtime uh, like shit poster person who like posts on her like Twitter mm-hmm. like and hate hate mail. I guess I get, maybe it gets to that point. Uh, is actually her long lost twin. Ooh, okay. Moving right along, uh, without questioning that too much. <laughs> Mallet yeah. SOS. It's a children's animation. <laughs> damn <show>. you. <laughs> it's about a submarine captain. I'll give you a spoiler. <laughs> Wait, you can't. Uh, that's my job. You oh. can't t- do that. All right. Last but not least, Salem's <laughs> Lot. Of course, the anagram everyone immediately thought of and has been waiting for this whole time. Molest Sal. Oh, no. <laughs> Let's, all right. That's enough. You won. You won. Um, that's the tagline. Oh, no. And hopefully we killed enough time. That we can reach an hour talking about Salem's hey, Lot. No problem. Good job. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for humoring me. Should we go under the dome? Under the dome. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? So, yeah, this is the elevator synopsis of the movie. I'll do this real quick, I guess. You, ha- I mean, you're all like warmed up doing elevator synopses, so please. Yeah. Hey, uh, what was Salem's Lot about? Well, this guy named Ben Mears, right? He's a writer, and after a long time, a uh, long absence, he returns home to his hometown, Salem's Lot in Maine. Ding, ding, ding. Stephen King wanting to write a book about a haunted house in town. Uh, he finds that it's been rented by this guy named Richard Straker, who's preparing it for a uh, business partner. Uh mysteriously this mysterious uh person kurt barlow while he's home he reunites with his past and starts uh dating susan norton um along an old flame and it becomes clear that after the arrival of uh like a crate in the night one night which actually houses Kurt Barlow, an ancient vampire. The arrival the of a crate is, in the night. Sorry. <laughs> the entire town is uh, slowly uh, getting turned into the vampires. Well, goddamn vampires, man. Yeah, it was goddamn vampires. <laughs> is that, that is really about it. I mean. Yeah, that's all the through lines they I do, can think um, of. They do the things that you would do. They go get crosses yeah. and stakes and they go in it's there in the daytime and they stake yeah. that guy hard through it's the heart. Pretty missionary position. Vampire shit. Vampires. Yeah, yeah, he says, uh, he, they say, well, what about his familiar? How will we take him out? He says, well, you can just shoot him. 45 yeah. minutes later, they encounter him. They shoot him. He dies. They were right. <laughs> Yeah, it well, all they, works yeah, they out shoot the, the way guy who's not a vampire, go. and then they uh, there's this one thing uh, prologue and an epilogue. That's where, the only uh, textural element chased. is that yeah is that they form a the two survivors who are Ben Mears mm. and uh, a kid who is a small boy his What's girlfriend's his younger brother. I think <sighs> I forget his actual connection. One of the towns. Folk is a is rascally this? kid Mark. named Mark, and Mark Ben Petri. and Mark become basically on the run from the vampire Illuminati for the rest. They're of They're the their only lives. ones in town. I mean, without with the exception of the constable who has a scene where at the end yeah, he's been kind of denying him. Huh? Why don't the because vampires chase him all over the world? <laughs> Ch- Chief Wiggum didn't kill their master. Kurt he just kind of bailed, so they're like, "All right, fine." And he also didn't believe. 
So that's like neat and tidy. Although the vampires wouldn't know that. Um, in fact, the vampires in this film seem pretty like thrall esque. Well, you know, like they're also or look wise, at least the film version. I don't know if how they're described in the book, but mm-hmm. clear uh, of the Nosfera- Nosferatu school of vampire. Yeah, like uh, is, that style yeah. of makeup. Of if you've uh, seen uh, what we do in the shadows, they're the old mm-hmm. European one mm-hmm. that they accidentally. I shouldn't have said that. Spoilers for season two, <laughs> I believe. Of, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah. Nosferatu oh, God, is so the touchstone. Nosferatu. Their mind right now. Yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah. So that's kind of under the dome. I mean, that's more or less what it is. Uh, so we can move right along, right? We're lucky we have that new Star Trek show because what a bad episode this is going to be. Here we go. Next part. <laughs> make the sausage. Move it along. They can't all be winners. <laughs> all right. What section are She's, we in now? <laughs> what a dick. Uh, this is Skeleton Thank Crew. You. Something in the mist. Shut the doors. Shut the doors. This episode should be 25 minutes. <laughs> this is where we talk about the creative team or any interesting behind the scenes trivia. What's that? Michael? I said this episode, it would be funny because we never go under 50 if this was like a 25 minute episode. I would. I'm going to make it. I'm going to stretch it for time, good. baby. Stretch it. <laughs> we'll invent a game well, that we can play. I don't know. <laughs> this is nominally our deep dive show. So yeah, he generally runs long. But speaking of yeah, behind the we'll scenes figure. stuff, mm-hmm. um, I'll say this. Uh, originally, this was going to be a feature film directed by George A. Romero. I bet that would have been better. But... Uh, yeah, but they, it was made for TV, so they... He right. dropped out when he said, I don't, I'm not a TV director. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And Toby Hooper, who was on the way up at that time, said, I'll take it. And indeed, that was a smart move, because it helped. It was one of the stepping stones that built his career, and mm-hmm. he's made good horror movies, and he eventually got there and has made some good horror movies that I like. Yeah. Um, also notable... Dick Stryker actually is good. And that's because that's James Mason, who, if you're too young to know, is just a great character actor from the, you know, about uh, two generations back, who is uh, really, really, really good. And when you put him in stuff, he does a good job. A star is born, North by Northwest, Lolita. James Mason. Yeah. Yeah. And he's very Uh, creepy (laughs) as as Mr. Stryker. I'm sure he's a... He's, I, I'm sure, a hundred percent sure, not not even knowing this, he's the impulse for a Simpsons character, mm-hmm. right? He's got to be. He's like one of those guys. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and just to, I want to backpedal a little bit for Toby Hooper. Uh, the reason you might know that name is he's famous for the Leatherface movies, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which got him this job. Yep. Also, also Poltergeist. And yeah. Swaim, you mentioned how you didn't like this movie. What? Um, or miniseries, <laughs> yes. Uh, depending on who you talk to, Spielberg was more instrumental in the direction of Poltergeist than one would uh, expect out of a producer. Right. Um, some think he all the way like shadow directed sequences. Um, and if you look at his other films, he directed another Stephen King adaptation. Uh, the Mangler, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point, which I'm is why they considered to be very, very shitty. Very bad. <laughs> yeah. So I've actually seen it. We'll cover it. Uh, but it's 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 garbage. It's it's hot 
hot But if it's garbage. hot garbage, I might be less confrontational. This is cold, tepid vanilla pudding, which is the thing I get most angry about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was just boring, basic missionary vampire stuff going across my glazed eyeballs. Um, yep. And that's the kind of thing that I, that I hate the most. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. we should also mention that... Uh, this was Stephen King's second published novel. And uh, I only mention that because that is a point, a focal point around which the constellation of my hatred for Salem's Lot will become sensible. Mm. It's um, also the yeah. second film to be based off his writings, if I understand the chronology. So it's, it's real early days, but I think importantly, it's early days even for him as a storyteller on the public stage. Yes, yeah, so this is early days for several reasons, which means I think that there's probably less Stephen King in it because he wasn't as influential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was just a writer. Yeah. Just a writer guy. He had no name. And we usually talk about any actual King slash novel stuff in this segment. So I'll say that King uh, has said that he was inspired to write the book when he, because he was an English teacher uh, before he was Stephen King. And uh, he had his English class read Dracula. And he said he became curious about what would happen if vampires came to America. And I I don't want to unpack that, but I will when we get to it, because there's some interesting psychology Mm. to go into there. Is there anything else skeleton crew wise or any notable? We don't usually use this section, but I was moved, I guess, to write uh, like up a little thing that I thought was kind of cool. You're turning Uh, everything into director piece theater, I swear. uh, Yeah. Okay. It's only (laughs) the the way in which I see the world sway. All right. There's a shot in this movie uh, where one of the boys is abducted uh, and they're walking through the woods. <clears throat> and at first I saw how the like the fog was moving kind of unnaturally fast as they uh, walk through the forest. And this is usually a problem of like an impatient director. Right. Because <clears throat> especially when it's clearly a stage. And it's made to look like a forest. And you got fog machines that got these nozzles that spit out fog. Uh, you can get like low volume versions that like kind of emit the fog as a haze. But um, it always has this kind of momentum because it literally is steaming out of this machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <clears throat> that's usually you can just wait it out until it stops its momentum. Let the fog settle. Right. Uh, And I noticed that I was like, ooh, bad directing. Uh, Because there's like nothing, you can't really slow down gases, right? You just have to kind of wait. Then at a particular beat in the scene, though, I noticed that the wind kicks up like a hurricane and blows the entire set's fog into oblivion and like just absolutely pounds the greenery in on the stage. And it's kind of, it's kind of awesome. Um, and I thought that the fans must be pretty huge because while the space is not that small, uh, that fog reset is quite a bit and it's cause it has like nuance to it. There's layering, uh, in the set. If you look at the earlier shots in the sequence, there's like a little fog foreground, a little fog background, and there's pockets of light. Um, and there's a lot to like shooting fog is kind of hard, it's even on a stage because you tend to see on stage. It just won't die. 
No, on this in a stage, you have the tendency because you have so much control to kind of dial in lighting and give like a special light for like, oh, just a hair light for when they step into this spot. Why? Because we have a grid and we can do it. But if you start backlighting fog a lot, uh, you'll start to notice it looks really unnatural very quickly. Um, and it's also hard to light because if you f like front light it, uh, you usually don't see a lot of it. So it's like a little can go a long way with light and in fog. So <clears throat> I noticed that I noticed this stuff only because I'm like kind of trained to, um, and it looked manufactured and I, I noticed it, but all I can say is this, that like for a TV movie, especially that in like four to six shots, and you're working with kids. Uh, what a challenge. Like, this is absolutely an impressive sequence to me that even though it at first looks like, oh, they didn't seem like they did work. Uh, it actually is one of the more technically proficient aspects of like all aspects of filmmaking, trying to run your time, uh, you know, efficiency correctly. Uh, all of the different hurdles that you had to do just to get this um, shot even with the stage control in 1979 on a TV movie budget. It's pretty impressive. Um, and I just wanted to point that out, I guess. Fred Willard's nipples also in the movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Abe, do you think we were foolish not to do the thing that we had in Coen Brothers Brothers where we go through and do lines and moments that stood out? Sometimes I no. feel like we should have that. No? <clears throat> I don't think we've ever been foolish once in our life. Mike. Great. Then are mm -hmm. we ready to move into... It. Yeah, I think we did. Bill, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. I think we did it. Okay, I'll be normal. I'll get on track. Let's talk about the movie, the themes, the scene work. I do uh, not like your tone, sir. And what we, you get it, you get out what you put in, Salem's Lot, or as I call it, um, lame L toss. That's one nice. I didn't use. <laughs> I'm very thankful you did. Uh, uh, I have a few observations. Yeah, me the, too. Because this is my first viewing of this, right? Me too. All right. And you just did a chunk, so can I go? Yeah, you go. All right. Uh, I think that the most notable aspect is we almost could have covered this movie first, but it doesn't really matter. You can make the connections in either direction, but the fact that the character is a writer, Ben Mears, the main character is a writer slash teacher, which is what Stephen King is. That has become a through line in multiple. So we talk about the King of Earth and there's a Venn diagram and there's things King likes to do and there's King tropes. I It has really opened my eyes doing this series that he's a lot narrower. He has less range than I thought. As a storyteller, he does have very clear tropes and rhythms and proclivities. And mm. this is almost the progenitor of uh, so many of them in an interesting way, because yeah. it also hints at stuff that's much better developed later on. For example, they talk about how the Marston house is evil and it's not just vampires. It's subtly fucked up the whole town, but they don't really go far into it. But they have a throwaway line or two about how, no, the whole town's kind of, uh, maybe there's some extra racism because of the house. Who knows? And they never really follow up on it. And mm -hmm. they'll say, like, do you believe evil can 
be confined to a place, but they don't follow up on it. Um, they say the most interesting thing in the movie that they never follow up on in my mind was him going, uh, I think the house itself is evil. And if the house attracts evil, I know. Why did it attract me? This implication that there's going to be some dark truth about Ben Mears that's never revealed. He's fine. He's good. He's fine. But um, this is all obviously pointing to The Shining, which is a great King story that is like finally that idea come to full fruition and shades of it with the town being fucked up from the malevolence. Um, And there's a couple other elements, but I'll just say it's, Interesting, and I'll definitely spout them out as they uh, reoccur mm-hmm. to me. But uh, my real takeaway was just it's fascinating to watch Stephen King sort of find his legs, especially considering right. that he's mashing it up with such a classic monster as vampires. Which, if you guys heard my dumb faux pas, you know, five episodes ago, I said, I don't think King's ever done vampires. And everyone tweeted, Salem's Lot, you fool. And I will stand behind, like, It's not his best thing, and it does feel like him practicing horror, and he's taking a well-trod territory, vampires, not going to rock the horror boat, and he's doing his thing, and he's figuring out how to be Stephen King. I'd call it like a clumsy sophomore effort from Stephen King, and Mm -hmm. uh, interesting for a show like us uh, and you know, for completionists. And I'm sure it struck certain people at a time in their life where they have nostalgia for it. Cause like I looked at, you know, this movie has lots of five-star reviews of people saying, I love this movie. I know it's dated, but it just, it has me hypnotized from start to finish. And I'm like, well, it just isn't good. I don't know what to tell you. Um, it's very basic and workmanlike and <laughs> boring. Yeah. Uh, in you my opinion, with TV movies, cause they can't really take cha- like risks. They can't do, violence that often uh they can't do gore at all they actually did reshoots to make the cut we watched which is the hooper director's cut uh Mm -hmm. gorier than the miniseries was and i'm like what that this barely had any blood in it or anything yeah uh i also love that when james mason's coming down the stairs for no reason he wastes all their bullets (laughs) shooting him in the chest slowly until his gun is clicking empty when one bullet would have killed him just let him die like he's slowly falling down the stairs let him fall down the stairs and die (laughs) there's so there's so many problems with the staging the like blocking being unrealistic the horror thing where it's like Mm -hmm. why would they turn around slowly they would turn around quickly oh this movie oh it's so vanilla I thought that uh, you're right about the staging and the blocking but uh i thought that that uh that interior is pretty badass looking the taxidermy room was cool yeah there's um, some cool and production again, design elements i got a kick out of seeing fred willard be totally mm-hmm. serious like deliver no jokes and mm-hmm. actually well, do yeah. some okay acting when he was like yeah. you don't want to kill me you don't want to throw your life away for a for for a mm-hmm. lie like mm-hmm. begging for his life shit yeah i miss He's, that uh, having an affair and uh, yeah. he gets caught uh and the guy puts a shotgun in his face um Which yeah so clicks empty i mean i think that there's something to be said about when you start doing more generic kind of versions. Like we kind of talked about this being like vanilla vampires. I I had the same observation where I was like, Oh yeah, it's like, 
more clear than the, in this film than most of other uh, adaptations of King. Um, you can kind of see all the different tropes, you know, like if we list the tropes that we're pretty aware of and are well trodden at this point for King, you know, it's like he usually follows like a group of adolescents or there's oh, he's in town working on a book, small yeah. towns, usually in Maine. Uh, and one of the big ones that like really dawned on me this time is that much like thinner dead zone, the mist it, there's a focus at one point where the small town blames other people or fresh faces. This is the strangers. Um, and it's like a huge, like when you look back at his canon, you realize that a stranger in a small town being blamed for a crime is like, and in depending on the story, whether or not that's true um, is, you know, based on those particulars. Well, and but the that's most, something that he likes to do a lot. Definitely. Right? And the most endlessly compelling thing that I think has come out of us discussing it together for me has been seeing how uh, he likes to twist the nature of Americana or the American dream to derive his premises. Yes. Have you, uh, do you know, uh, shoot, I think it's Robert England. Um, let me look that up. But the artist who does twisted Americana the stuff. Artist. Uh, that rings a bell. Yeah, but Robert England's Freddy Krueger. I think maybe yeah, you're it's thinking of Freddy. I was like, yeah, I was thinking you were thinking about Freddy because we're talking. And about it's horror. not Ben Edlund either. So I give up because that's the tick guy. But anyway, there's this guy who paints like super surrealist. Uh, usually Ronald McDonald's involved. You know, that guy. You know the art, I mean. <laughs> I think so, yes. But anyway, I, I always see that in my head when we talk about this, and it, it reminds me of like the kind of vibe Stephen King's stuff starts to give off, where it's like Pennywise has such a specific compelling vibe because, uh, yeah. because circus pop art is like an American, uniquely American tradi tradition. And it's interesting to me that King explicitly says that he was like, I wanted to bring vampires specifically from Europe to America. And see how mm. that would change it. And what I, where I think it falls down days, is man. it didn't change nothing. It like he it then does. goes on to tell the same. But it, if you disagree. know what I mean, I feel like James Mason brings too much of Europe with him. The mm. vampires don't speak, so it's hard to. In what? Okay, go ahead. Like you, you tell me then. In what well, way is this uniquely American <clears throat> vampire story? I. Uh, well, those are two different questions. I do feel that there is a little bit, I can't answer the uniquely American aspect of it, or I can answer the, uh, what makes this one different than previous vampire films. Okay. Um, go for which it. Which one do you want? The second one. Cause you have an answer. <laughs> I have an answer. All right. So, uh, to me, like, what's different about this movie than others. They is like pretty well documented. They talk about it. The producer talks about it. Um, it's kind of like, uh, at this time in like the, you know, totality of cinema, uh, Dracula was usually portrayed in as aristocratic, like, you know, Transylvanian kind of baron or count. Right. And he was usually sexy and like had rouge on his cheeks and a widow's peak and was very well spoken. And a part of his allure was his, you know, aristocratic kind of, um, you know, personality that kind of like made us all, you know, feel 
because it's like an aristocrat thing, right? Like when we look at, uh, you know, what the, the mythos comes from, you're right. This is like, he's, this is one of the first times that we actually see a version of vampires that are just like feral. Um, they have some power. It seems to be telekin like telepathically involved because everyone immediately looks in their eyes of vampires and they're like, Oh shit. But the vampires can barely make words. And the main ancient vampire is entirely uh wordless. A beast. But, I, yeah. but that's not the first time that's the Nosferatu tradition. That's how Nosferatu drif- differs from Dracula. Nosferatu right. always yeah, is just a hissing monster. That's true. That's true. But I guess uh, in terms of like what uh, Dracula and- had, Become, I must point out or, the mm. reason this was downgraded from being a feature film into it being a TV miniseries is they, the producers felt they missed the boat because uh, a film version of Dracula and Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, the vampire were just released. So they're like, Oh, we missed the boat. Let's make it a TV miniseries for less money. So mm. I would argue that everyone involved knew <laughs> That this was not going to be. That it was boring and played out. And Stephen King is just finding his feet. And it's like Mm -hmm. a basic not as good as he would eventually be Stephen King's story. kind of right. But I still want to like go to bat for like the crafts people. I get it. Bat. Because like uh, everything's contextual, right? Like it's it's not just that. It's just – it's not just that – yes, there was Nosferatu. But that was so old at that point that like there had been a swing back where like, no Dracula, Dracula and vampires are done this way mm-hmm. and they chose to go a different way. That is true. Um, so that, yeah, that's all yeah, I was going to point out about that. Um, also that artist's name, he does look like Ben Edlund, but his <laughs> name is Ron English. Wait, Ro- <laughs> Rob England? No, Rob England is Freddie, bitch. Freddie. Yeah. He looks like who's Ben, ben Edlund. Edlund. But the artist who I highly recommend people look up, his art is great, is Ron English, and he does Twisted Americana style shit. Ron English. Ron Too many English. Names. <laughs> no, I don't know which one to search. No, I do. It's fine. Uh, Ron English. There you go. I like that. I think I know the art you're talking about. I'll look it up later. Um, I do have kind of... I did think that this doesn't... There's not uh, something worth mining here. Mm-hmm. About what is what's unique about this tale, uh, about being a traditional American version. Uh, I'm and trying comes, to figure out what there what is there. Actually, Do you see I something? Think, <laughs> I think that this is one of the only times that we've uh, you know watched or you know uh, King is going for romance and sexuality uh that's and that's you know par for the course for you know vampires uh yeah they do the classic tv drama miniseries of the 70s -hmm. 80s thing where it's not just the a plot about vampires Mm -hmm. almost as if it's obligatory we get to know the town a little and we're like exactly and it makes it feel novel like so-and-so's cheating on so-and-so based or adolescence the suit through the lens of adolescence it's not uh, you know, just like, oh, shit, shoot, they're, they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're go- she's going to go out with me. It's not that kind of stuff. It's like uh, more mature kind of themes. Um, and so kind of going back to 
If you haven't listened to the show, we have a take, which is that King takes traditional cultural tropes of suburban, uh, well, rural suburban America. And usually they take tropes by that. I mean, things like coming of age, the idea of having a small town like reunion or like blue collar work or blue collar uh, characters. 50s lingo is there and there and its values is there because that's the society that King was kind of raised in. So this is the first time I think that he dissected a small town's like romantic historical contexts. Um, and, and of course, just under the surface, it's all mm-hmm. dark as hell. Oh, he's exactly. At, she, he's actually cheating with her. And when he mm-hmm. finds out, he's going to blow his head off. It's, They're all right. dark. Yeah. It's not the nature of strangers in suburban like it, where it's just like any who's stealing these kids, you know, like it's it must be someone who's not inside this town. This is more nuanced in like, all right, there's always kind of been a cultural hypocrisy, not just in America. Like if you watch Italian neorealism films or French New Wave films, you get a lot of this mid-century breaking down. I think it was in like the 50s and 60s. And with the whole idea of like, you know, just what was going on culturally in the 60s, uh, there's this breaking down in the film sphere that uh, the more archaic and traditional mishandling of things like the fallout of a closely knit community and the messy, the messy byproduct of local romances were like a thing. Fist in the Pocket is a film that I yep. can recall. Like there's a lot of films that are like, oh, we're doing this nonsense as humans we're doing theater. Everyone knows everything about everyone. That sounds nice. America, you know, that you have like, Oh, everyone knows your name. Yeah. But until you, you know, you have that night where you get drunk and make out with someone and now everyone knows. And you're like, I don't really want to be with that person. Like he's, he doesn't really do that, but he does do, he kind of does like, um, like if you look at the relationships in this movie, we have Ben Mears, who's like the new hotness in town. He's starting to date Susan Norton. Uh, and it's all very like risque for the fifties, which is like very, but he's also super woke dude. Yeah. She yeah, says exactly. modern American female aggressively stating her needs. Does that make right. you uncomfortable? It's, no, it makes me feel right. good. It's got all of the, uh, it's got all of the complexity of like the karate kid, you know, like, like he's oh, a good ass guy. In fact, for no reason other than just his moral compass, he voluntarily came back to this town to root out all the evil that he right. senses is there. It's like, oh, baby, let's go to the lake is like kind of like one of is the there scandal? conversations. Yeah. yeah. And it's so it's very in the face of that traditional and that classical. But it's not like anything that we would say now is like, oh, you know, we make fun of that shit now. And that's. That's one of the aspects of Stephen King is old. Um, Fred Willard plays a, a role, Larry Crockett. He's the realtor of the town, I guess. And his assistant, Bonnie Sawyer, they're having an affair. And Coley, Bonnie's husband, finds out and threatens to shoot Crockett. Uh, three, there's a divorced elderly couple uh, who still like kind of lives with each other. Weasel and Eva. Um, Ned Tibbetts is like a single guy stalking Susan Norton who he used to who they used to date and another just like peppering in just like Americana bullshit um people mostly men will refer to women as a kind of sexualized pet name like boom boom Bonnie or they'll comment about how Eva Miller was quite a dish. We kids used to watch her sashaying down the street. Uh it's usually responded to 
by women as just like men, you know? And so it's like, it's also kind of presenting that's the culture there. Uh, and, um, at one point at dinner at the Norton's Susan mentions Ben's new book being about two men and her mother goes, not one of those. Uh, and then uh, meaning like, oh, is he gay? You know, it's just like such a bizarre no, are thing. Are the characters to, in the book gay? Yeah. And does yeah. that mean that Ben's gay? Um, there, are, There's also a comment at one point at the end of that dinner where, he, where the man, the husband, the dad, the Dr. Uh, Norton says, sorry about the peas. She usually does them better than that. <laughs> I just thought was such a fucked up. Like, I think that King I love it. Is That's not... the same dude who handcuffs his son and is mm-hmm. like tighter son. And he's like, yeah, dad, I want it tighter. And he goes like, where are the key for these? I don't need the key. All right, son. And right. you're like, I mean, first of all, I just think that guy was weird because every yeah. scene he was in, he only had he a function. Weird. And if you put all the functions together, it makes a very bizarre personality. He was weird. But like, at the end, too, and he's like just going up the stairs. And I'm like, yeah, it's very unnatural. That actor was strange. He's a weird guy. <laughs> but then also just the, uh, the clumsy screenwriting of. I wonder if that kid will escape from handcuffs later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, right. uh, go on. Uh, I think that because he chose um, his characters, his identity characters to be on the, um, the, that side of uh, the, the kind of more progressive side of things. And the fact that vampires represent history, they're literally running in an antiques, store uh store so it's the idea that they also one of the one of the interesting things is <laughs> i don't mean to say only like a bitter old bastard <laughs> but one of the things that's is interesting is they talk about the geometric progression of the nature of vampirism which not every vampire story goes into but treating it like a plague like literally like the stakes yeah, are the fast. whole pun intended the stakes are the whole town could literally become vampires in a matter of days it's almost like the thing yeah like uh every night they're knocking out like 60 like i don't know like oh yeah 10 a lot of the characters like both of those kids that you thought were going to be identity characters immediately get turned into vampires and you're like all right i guess uh yeah half of our ensemble is now <laughs> vampires so I, yeah i think that you're right that there's the idea of the old world European value the throwback values coming over and infecting a pocket of Americana with the like stilted backwards, you know, no goodness mm-hmm. of the old yeah. world. But it's I'm just ups- rolling my eyes because I feel like we're making the story sound more interesting than it deserves. Like, I mean, watch White these Ribbon. These are the things on. <laughs> I think that it's one of the failures of the adaptations. I mm-hmm. haven't read the novel, yeah. but the all the pieces are there, and I know enough about story and King uh, and his impulses in terms of story that, like, I can already tell that there's a lot of work that he's putting into to try to flip it. I think he's doing what you just said, where he is kind of representing um, this other, uh, which is one thing, but he's also trying to say that traditionalism as he often does 
is kind of like a double-edged sword, right? Mm. Uh, there's some aspects of the traditional American experience that are good and like pepper in some of the fun times, you know, riding a bicycle with your buds, you know, saying swears down at the frog hole. Summer break, you know, these whatever. kinds of things yeah. are usually fun for like nostalgic effort, but he usually tries to bleed the uh, assumptions of Americana where he's like, don't and, forget there was also a bully who would kick your ass. Like there and was he's bad like, don't shit. forget yeah. like, like the para, he usually does it by parallel too. Or one of your friends, never, their dad was hitting them and shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He usually, ne- he, he usually uh, makes it an analog. He, he uh, always kind of said he never has like the thing that he's trying to comment on. Like in the case of it, where he's talking about strangers and others, he, he makes it into this, like a clown is a very common, like you can, you invite a clown to your fucking house on your birthday of your child. That's a weird thing that we do. Uh, and he's kind of pointing out, here's this comfort thing. Is it that comfortable though? All I have to do is make it like an alien clown. That's like hideous and horrifying. Uh, same thing here. He's doing that with vampires. But if you look at like in between the lines, you can kind of see that he's doing this parallel to, uh, the traditionalism of like dating structures, dating like protocols, and like the way in which we do like the hierarchy of gender, uh, you know, society is kind of fucked up and everyone knows. And you have the fallout at all this shit. You have people like the real, ho- like if you look at the first like hour and a half, there's almost no vampires. Uh, oh, dude. You- one of my notes in all caps is. Uh- yeah. Then they have the kid's funeral. Then there's an eerie wind that goes by. It's 90 minutes in. That's fucking it. Right. A wind. <laughs> Yeah, like we haven't like, seen a vampire on camera yet. And like the tension comes from seeing like the Fred Willard scene. There where is he's got no tension. Gun. But he's got a gun in his face and you think that he might get shot because sure. the guy's like drunk and unhinged. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also like discussing this fallout of like divorced elderly couple. He's talking about Ned Tibbetts as like a stalker. Like all these people are being converted. But I gotta by say, this, you what? do have a strong feeling as the audience of where are the vampires? Because mm-hmm. you know Although it's when about they do vampires. Come, yeah, those kids are terrifying. The window stuff is that's, actually like for 1979 a very compelling image. I, I think that's why it just didn't have the impact on me. That's the one nah, image everyone yeah. talks about in the reviews. It looks like the footage was clearly reversed to me. The kid is not doing a it good is, job yeah. acting. They put a they put kids on like this. Um, like essentially a crane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, cause and usually there's wire work start, and they just like moved it. And it's kind of cool. Like they the start the I shot cool. with their lips on their brother's neck and then the crane pulls them back and they reverse the footage. And yeah. uh, everyone lauds it. I think it looks bad and hokey. I don't think it works. I just think it's a bad effect and a bad scene compared to the witch man the kids in the witch fucking the scene where he's possessed and he's writhing around yeah i don't know i mean yeah there's a difference of you know 30 years or whatever and i absolutely Uh, under 50 80 40 years and uh, i absolutely understand that but I cause them like I seize them. And just in the way There's that enoughs. our comedy will one day be so completely dated to the point that it will be an alien language yes. that everyone won't care about and will forget. 
I think yes. Salem's lot has expired. I don't think it's good no more. It's, you don't uh, need to experience it. You're, yeah, you've experienced better stuff <laughs> since then that on the same theme. I mean, I think that that's right. There, there's It literally is laughable in some instances. There, uh, like... Oh, your favorite there's, scene. Let's talk about that. Well, there's one when like Fred Willard dies and Mike Ryerson dies. There's two bits where it freeze frames and zooms in. Zoom pump uh, freeze frame. Yeah. And it's like one, and it's because it's for TV. It fades out real quick because it's like, yeah, you cut in a commercial. But it's just it's one of those things of a bygone era that they really never we never got good at the cut to ads, right? Because I don't think it's that possible. Uh, but the one where the boy in the grave bites Mike's neck, it's so stage. It's so yeah. funny. Uh, the other one is there's. A, oh, the other uh, one that gets me is the guy in jail who gets bit because you mm-hmm. just see a shadow and then it cuts yeah. to a matching shot of him and, and you, he tries to do a scared design. face, but it's you're basically scared. as if someone said, just open your mouth as wide as you can. Yeah. He doesn't look scared. He just looks like he's trying to open his mouth That's very wide. That's where I think Cooper fails is I think that he's <laughs> technically proficient, especially at the time, thinking outside the box of like, like let's uh, let's shoot it in reverse. Or he does some interesting stuff in highlight. I think he's technically there. Um, but like there's so many other filmmakers who are also at the same time technically there uh, and – uh, had much more interesting things that they could do with the medium. Like, I think that his, the reason he got good, he got like propelled forward, I think as a director is because Texas Chainsaw Massacre is kind of like the OG, you know, El Mariachi yeah, for like for Richard. Horror. Yeah. Like, cause like Rodriguez and what he's famous for is like the $10,000 film school. Right. He's like, I shot it super cheap. I used a town. I used people like stuff that today seems obvious for our tours, because this is a, this is in an age without our tours. Our tours have not happened yet. So like you don't have this outside the studio system. Would you not count Sergio Leone as an auteur? I mean, yeah, I guess you can, can consider international film, I'm talking about the American state of okay. film. Um, but yeah, like, cause those are independent films and in that, uh, you know, there isn't a conglomerate Hollywood behind it. Once you have, you know, once you've out of the twenties and thirties, well, you mean Hollywood studio system hasn't subsumed the idea of the auteur the, yet, which now well, exists yeah, exactly. within the that's studio right. system, which that's is right. funny. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. Like there's a lot to unpack about that. I could talk about that for a long for time sure. about how like MCU and shit, uh, is like actually like two steps back. But anyway, uh, it's, uh, like when you think about it, like he was, I think what the appeal of him was like, oh man, he can shoot it cheap and he knows like little tricks to do. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the game he plays with highlight in this movie is kind of cool. I think I mentioned it kind of similarly in thinner, which might've taken its idea from this movie, which is that like he started to ping highlight, uh, as a foreshadowing concept, uh, for who's going to turn into a vampire and also kind of like to figure out how much of a vampire are they in this scene? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they have these ultimate, like when people are an actual vampire, they have these glowing eye contacts that are actually kind of stark and striking uh, and visually kind of impressive. Like, I think they look good. The um, contact lenses are the best thing in the movie. They're really cool. Um, and 
he started to do this thing with eye light where you make huge eye light sources or also give multiple sources of light. So they ping the eye uh, multiple times, which is an unnatural look uh, for most conventional Hollywood. We like big highlights, but we don't like them like close to subject and large because that means you like turn into an anime character. So there's these piercing highlights that happen and then he lights it very darkly. That makes everyone feel like they're kind of like hit, you know, like when you go outside at night and you see like a raccoon run rummaging through your bin and you see these two glaring eyes at you, you know, it's because of the highlight. He's kind of trying to evoke that even on scenes that are just like, Oh yeah, Susan Hopper's just walking around, uh, you know, uh, she's just walking around in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the, the house at the end, the, whatever the name of the house Marston. is in this movie. Yeah. The, you know, like, and she hasn't turned into a vampire yet, but it's like, ah, yeah, but you're going to be a vampire in a second. And he's basically showing us that by making her look horrifying, like a, like an animal, um, Anyway, I think he's good at that stuff, but directorially, you're absolutely right. Sometimes he's just like, open your face. Same movie has a scene where a guy makes popsicle stick cross, blesses it, burns it into a vampire's head, and she fades away. She does. (laughs) She just disappears. That's how she dies. She disappears. It never happens to any other vampire before or after that. That's just how she goes out. She fades away like uh, a dream. Oh, man. I also love the first thing that our big bad ultimate vampire does when he finally arrives in the movie. Hell yeah. Is Three Stooges style, grab mom's head and dad's head and clang them together Dude. and knock them out like fucking bomb. For a vampire movie, there's a surprising a lot of like WWE moves. <laughs> yeah, for you real. Know? Like you mentioned that one, the lead gets decked by a guy who's hiding in the furniture at one point. He's hiding in a unrelated. folding screen. Yeah. That's related to like the romance arc. It's not unrelated to the vampire arc, although that man turns into a vampire eventually. Most uh, people do. But yeah, he just he's in his room hiding behind like I guess a fa- like a facade uh and the door. He's like using it as like a cave and the main like <laughs> takes off his jacket and is going to go take a nap and the guy just like bam, I'm here. And it's like he's straight up from WWE or something. It's one of the funniest things it's, I've seen. Yeah, there's just the problem where you don't understand how they didn't see that it's funny instead of scary frequently. Like yeah. at the end, when they finally kill Barlow, the way they show that monumentous death is his mate. You know, they did a like gel filled fake head and it melts away until it's just mm-hmm. a skull. Fine. But then <laughs> in one frame, like Peter Griffin falling off his bike or some shit, <laughs> uh, the jaw of the skull clicks open and there's a really loud click noise like that was hilarious like the vampire as it dies is like smiley face like bye yeah. kids it's like so dumb <laughs> just so Here's dumb Johnny. yeah it's uh it's it's, it's like when you go good. to a haunted house and like a plastic witch jumps out and goes <laughs> yeah and like yeah, this is not that's scary right. it's just that's right impulsive and that's one of the other things is that it's not just a bad impulse. Like, cause that's the, the, I, I guess maybe if you're making it for like kids or whatever, you know, like a witch cackling as a, like a, a scare in a haunted mm-hmm. house is not a bad impulse, but it's just like, 
pretty basic, right? And it's not like refreshing anything or trying anything new or making it its imprint on the memory of the person who experiences the scare. So Hooper's not really doing that. Also, uh, it's not clear that that's what he's doing. So from a directorial standpoint, like, I don't know what that opening mouth, like watch that sequence and like, tell me someone, tell me film criticism, what he thought he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me what, uh, what is, what is the goal there? And there's multiple things like the opening, the guy in the jail opening his mouth as a reaction. Like you can, you can tell Yes, so there's sometimes you use bad actors. Oh, I think that that still yeah. is put at the you know foot of the director because I agree. You, you I actually cast that person. I actually but also think, on the day you could have told him not to just open his mouth and look weird. Yeah, like agreed. you could go. I don't have it. I want to keep shooting. The please. scene in the witch that features I still think some of the greatest child acting in film like in a long, long time where the children are pretending to be possessed or are possessed, depending on your interpretation and writhing around. Uh, that is a, an amazing collaboration between the, everyone on set that day, the children themselves and the director. I, mm-hmm. but so I'm not like, bl- I'm not trying to shit on some people who are kids in 1979 but i found the acting of the children in this stilted and wooden and that takes a great director to get a child to not act stilted and wooden. yeah uh i think that he had his back against the wall for the same reasons that george romero did not say yeah it's it's a made for tv because it's obvious if you you know like tv movies at this point in the stage in history are like uh you better knock that shit out fast yeah yeah and they had a crazy schedule but you had james marsden you had like holly from james mason diehard mason sorry you had like so many like this is actually not a small deal uh there's money behind it i can see it in the sets yeah it's weird that you spent all that time getting the fog right in the sequence that I pointed out earlier, but didn't take the time on the day to like make sure that or like the the let's talk about like the main vampire. He is iconic. He looks like you have not seen this film, most likely people who are listening, but you've seen this vampire. You know, he's as uh, iconic as Nosferatu in a lot of ways. Uh, he's the blue one with the weird front teeth. And uh, and you remember him because he's it's like a cool look. Mm-hmm. So they went far, but it's just weird that at random times they didn't go the necessary steps in order to make a movie like not designed poorly. And that's a strange thing to kind of um, defend uh, as a production. I'm out of anything to say about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let um, me see. I have no. I'm even out of anagrams. That was all the anagrams. You have all the anagrams. My last really Sal was. The... I, I like at the beginning. Oh, of this I got movie. one more. All right. Steam lulls. See that one's not good. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Steam lulls. Steam lulls. Wait, are we doing this again? Yeah, what would that movie be? Steam lulls. Steam lulls? Lulls? LOLs. Steam LOLs. Laughing out loud at steam. 
Uh, this is not a movie. This mm-hmm. is a YouTube video for uh, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> uh, steam, steam, uh, plant fails, uh, and most mostly it's just people getting burned in the face because they're steam. so amazed by steam. Yeah, no, no, concept it's just of pressurized steam, steam. Like, like a gasket pops and it like hits them in the face oh, with steam, and, and you they laugh go, ah, at it, and everyone laughs at them because they don't understand. It was a simpler Great. time back then. Yeah, you know. Uh, Let me see. Yeah, I mean, if we're doing that, I guess we're done. <laughs> Catholic priests, no, look at me, look. Imagery trying to conflate vampires with snakes is cool, but they didn't do anything with it. But I, I like, I haven't heard that before. Comparing a vampire to a cobra, how it like locks eyes with you and it hypnotizes mm-hmm. you by swaying. Um, but they could have gone. Imagery but they could have gone further with it. Yeah. yeah, the town burns down. That's I the end. Really funny at the beginning of the movie. Like this is, mm-hmm. I think this is on Stephen oh, King. I got one last thing. And so it, should I just stop what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. It's okay. just a Kingism. Big brother feels guilty for little brother's death. It should have oh, been me. Oh yes, that's true. That yeah. is a thing that he does. Now what were you going to say? At least two other times. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was funny at the beginning. Uh, like when you craft a story. It's like, I'm here to investigate a Dracula. I'm Ben Mears. But first, I need to lock down some ass. So any good vampire hunter now knows that when you're in a new location, you get your ass covered first. Because uh, he immediately is not like, all right, I'm going to go investigate this haunted house or do any of that stuff. Uh, he spends a few days striking up a relationship with this woman yeah, in town. After yeah. knowing that something's <laughs> clearly up. like it's And just, he says... Sometimes he says I'm after vampires. Sometimes he says I'm after the house itself. He's not fully clear on his quest. Yeah, that, that that's one thing is that it seems like it, it seems like it was going that way where it was like, oh, no, he just learned the vampires. But there is one or two sequences that feel like out of sequence because he does that. He talks where he about goes like, house. it's not about the vampires. It's about the whole I history think, of the town. I but we don't have time. Him, it's just vampires. <laughs> I think that was the screenwriter trying to navigate. Like he doesn't want to look like a weirdo, you know, and he's not always sure. talking about these vampires. But you can um, see how it informs King's later stuff for sure. Yeah. It's like, well, he just cleared it all up because he's like, well, you something King doesn't do that often is have some character know what's going on. Uh, clearly, and at the same time, a bunch of people don't. Um, and if he does it like in the mist, it's for a very short amount of time, and that's something that I think you learn in horror movies that you it seems like a very rich bag of tricks. The idea of like it's even uh, harder for the person who, like, let's say your protagonist who knows, like, oh, there's like something out in the mist. Uh, and I saw it and it had a tentacle or something and it's a lot more horrifying and we should like really like focus on it. And all these people like, there's no tentacles in the mist. Uh, that game seems like it's probably good to play from a writer's standpoint because it only ups the conflict in terms of like now, not only does he have to deal with the monsters, but inside he's not believed. Um, but you, I think King is kind of learning that like, that kind of um, conspiracy aspect, it's not that horrifying except for like once. Because if you keep going back to it like several times in this movie, there's multiple people that he has to explain and Susan has to explain like, no, they're vampires, man. And most people are like, nah, I don't believe you. And it's like, okay, after the third time of that, you're like, 
what is the point of the scene anymore? You kind of have to not, you don't want to really ride that section of your screenplay out for a while, uh, is I think what he's learning, uh, in this, or at least the screenplay didn't, uh, you know, do well to avoid that. That's well, my take. Budget is a thing. Budget is a and thing. And made for TV is a thing, but I'll just point out that three years before this, Carrie came out, and Carrie is better <laughs> significantly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the very next year was The Shining. <laughs> like, imagine yes. watching this at your on your on TV at home, and then one year later you see The Shining, and you're like Oh, oh, Stephen King is really good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that's that, a big difference. <laughs> it puts it in perspective for sure. It also shows that, uh, you know, uh, a talented director and screenwriter, uh, you know, mm-hmm. worth its weight in gold. Hey, I, uh, if anything, it highlights why this is not a book club. Like why we really, uh, that's the importance of adapting. The adaptation results can vary wildly. Like I haven't read Salem's Lot, the book. For all I know, it could be (laughs) Stephen King's finest written book. You would not know that from the way they adapted it. So that's I mean, they've tried to highlights what we're doing here. They've made it into a miniseries twice, so there's something in it. Yeah, and we'll eventually cover the other one, uh, of course. But it seems like real basic vampire shit, to be honest. Let's get the fuck out of here. Fuck this <laughs> basic vampire shit. <laughs> yeah. That means that um we're going to go to our last segment called The Stand. It's time to make your stand. By me. Oh, uh, stand. This is kind of just where we talk about where it exists in the King Pantheon. Mm-hmm. Baby. I am a baby. Goo goo. Let's start at the top. Mm-hmm. Shall we? And let's make yeah, it quick yeah, yeah, yeah. because I think we know where this is going. I'm just interested in the bottom. The, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So yeah, number yeah. one, The Shining. Shining. Number two, Dr. Sleep. Stand By Me. Number three, Stand By Me. Uh, misery. Number four, Misery. Dr. Sleep. There, that's our unit. That's resolved. That's our unit. Number five, The Mist. The Mist. Number six, Christine. Uh, number six, The Running Man. I really like that one about that evil car. Number really like seven, Running Man. Uh, the Green Mile. <laughs> and that's where we differ wildly. Number eight, Thinner for me. Uh, Christine. Okay. So this is getting back on track. <laughs> Horrible film. Love Carpenter. Probably favorite director of all time. N- number nine, Dead Zone. <laughs> Uh, number nine for me is uh, 1990s It. That's number ten for me. So what's your I number know. ten? My number ten is The Dead Zone. Yeah, it's it's pretty okay. shitty. You really uh, you, I like Christine more than you. So number eleven, mm-hmm. Dreamcatcher, which I thought would be at the bottom forever. Oh. Uh, number eleven, I'm going with uh, Thinner. Yeah, that's a shame. Number twelve, Green Mile. Number twelve, I'm putting 1979 Salem's Lot. Okay, so this is episode 14. So Abe put it two, three from the bottom, depending on three how you from count the bottom. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got two more. Number 13 for me, Maximum Overdrive. And for you, you put Dreamcatcher. put it at the bottom, you dirty dog. So that means number 14 at the very bottom of the barrel for me, 
Salem's Lot, because Maxim Overdrive sucked out loud, but it had that cocaine energy. It was a hot mess. Salem's Lot is a tepid, boring three-hour mess that literally just felt like a chore. That is so good. That's so good. I love that so much. No, yeah, yeah. Maxim Overdrive is so bad because uh, uh, I... It was irresponsible to make. Uh, so yours is Maximum Overdrive number 14. Maximum Overdrive is the worst movie, dare I say, of forever. You like mean, it, yeah, that's, I mean, objectively, the, it has worse craftsmanship than Salem's Lot. I don't Lot. know if we're ever going to, it's not just craftsmanship. It's like, a, it's, it is, it's a hot mess. Yeah. It's a hot mess. And it had the, the audacity to even show up in my face. Like that to me, I take as a bold affront. Salem's Lot's boring. To me, that's the worst thing you can possibly be. Yeah, I see that because that's the death of a thousand cuts, but there's something about just the loud and proud maximum overdrive. Just the name makes me- Like the confidence of it. Yeah, just like, how how dare dare you think that this is normal? You (laughs) go back to your corner. You go back to wherever you came from. You fuck you, Maximum Overdrive. Hey, interestingly enough, uh, according to an article from The Hollywood Reporter in 2019, they're working on a new film version of Salem's Lot. New line is. I, there's probably something in the in the book that is like real fresh. So we might be covering that again soon, you know, in hey. the fullness of time. Hey. Um, <laughs> I would love to cover something that we expect to be good next because I need a palate cleanser. Can we talk about what we might cover next? Yeah, sure, baby. I'm looking at the list of all Stephen King adaptations. Do you want to do you want to do, do an oldie or a newie? Well, an oldie. W- I could do Creep Show because I've never seen that, but it's Romero, and mm. I expect it to be good because I like all the short stories it's based mm. on. Um, mm. I could do. <coughs> we could do something like early days. We could do something like Carrie. Well, that is real. I mean, Creep Show's early days. It's '82, mm-hmm. but. Uh, Still, I'm still skipping over Shawshank Redemption. It's just not time yet. Uh, I could do Dolores Claiborne. I never seen that, and I heard it's actually good. We could do Apt Pupil. (laughs) I've never seen Apt Pupil. It's Brian Singer, which turns me off. Brian Singer, yeah, that's always. But uh, we have to do it eventually. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) We could do one of the modern its. We could do Hearts in Atlantis, the romance one. Hmm. I haven't even seen that actually. So I have no I don't Dolan's know. Cadillac, one I know nothing about. Uh we could do a mystery one. We could do Pet Cemetery. Uh is that good? I mean it's fifty eight percent on rotten tomatoes. It's new. You want something that's also uh are you talking about the yeah. The the There's two old versions, one. I know. There's two versions. Um, they're all, they're both kind of fine. <laughs> hey, uh, let's do apt pupil. I've never seen it. You want to see apt pupil? And it's I a, bet it's not as it's boring as Salem's lot. Cause I've heard there's, I know some people who even like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It can't uh, be as bad as Salem's lot. Do you, okay. You, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It got, you got a words. Yeah. All, all right. right. And it's got Ian McKellen in it. Yeah. We'll do the Ian McKellen. Gandalf is a Nazi one. He's a Nazi. Gandalf's cool. a Nazi. Um, so right. this will be a, a borderline rapist directing a, a national treasure, but pretending to be a Nazi. So mm-hmm. it's going to be unpleasant, and we'll see you next time on Kings of Kings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
This has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.